0: Ali Shan was just eight years old when a mob attacked his village in Ludhiana, East Punjab. His entire family was murdered in moments, but for reasons he couldn't understand, one of the attackers spared his life. It was 1947, a moment in history that kindled his journey of transformation.
1: One morning we were sleeping and uh, there was a loud voices. So there we saw, I saw thousands of people surrounding the village with arms then my uncle came running so he took us to the center of the village he said go into the room and stay there and all the village women and children were in that room after about maybe two three hours which was like an eternity for us somebody bang on the door and the guy shouted that, open the door otherwise we will fire inside and set the room in fire so they told us to sit under a a big tree and they start killing. My cousin got shot and then my brother, he saw what was going on so he started running. So one guy came with a spear and hit him. So my mother saw that and she ran after him. So she fell over him and uh, they both were killed there. I was very traumatized I was standing there not knowing what's happening he the gunman was only about 10 feet away sort of you know he shot at me a few times every time he missed so I started running there one uh, guy came with a spear he tried to kill me in the meantime I I was bumping to the other guy he was killing too the other guy came to kill he said, no, don't kill him. And uh, the guy said, why not? And he, the one who was holding me, he said, no, I want to take this uh, ki- uh, child with me.
0: The gunman took him to the village of Kosoor, also in Punjab, but on the Pakistani side.
1: We were traveling and I was always wondering what was going to happen to me. And where he's taking me, he didn't explain to me anything. We walked two nights, day and night, to get to some village, which I don't know the name now. So there he left me with the family and then uh, six months I lived with them. Because there was agreement with India and Pakistan that who I was left in both countries, they should be recovered and brought back to the respective countries. They came and I had about 9 30, 10 o'clock. My uncle's cousin who was there told me about my father's name and my uncle's names and all that. So then I was kind of satisfied that he's, he knows the family so he'll be okay to go with. So I got into the refugee camp and my uncle, he came because he was 30 miles away in the town Karkasur. So he came from there every day to look for us. My uncle didn't realize what I needed, that all I needed was hugged and loved and uh, be assured that I'm safe now.
0: Ali Shan's life changed at the age of 12 when he met his friend Muhammad Rashid Sodai. For the first time, he felt like he had finally found his home.
1: With him, I found that I belonged to somebody. And I was not alone anymore. What my friend taught me, I forgave to the evil people who killed my family. My own uh, way of uh, thinking is that just love everyone, hate no one. That's the way I look at it.
0: Ali Shan's transformational journey is not the only one from that period of time. 1947 marked the end of the British rule in South Asia, but it also marked the birth of India and Pakistan. Chaos unfolded along religious fault lines, and millions of lives were changed overnight when people were forced to flee their homes. 15 million became homeless, and 1 to 2 million died. A series of changes within the larger context of social, political, and national transformation. Until recently, there was no public archive of transformation stories around this momentous series of events. Then, in 2010... A UC Berkeley student called Gunita Singh Bhalla and a group of citizen historians decided to change this by creating the 1947 Partition Archive, bringing us stories directly from those who are still living and care to share their experiences, just like Ali Alishan. The transformational stories of the 1947 Partition of India and Pakistan. This is what we'll look at today on Asian Threats. Asian
2: threads.
3: Asian threads. 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 Spinning the tales of Asian communities and cultures, their personal accounts, their history, and their literature. Asian 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 threads. This program is sponsored by the Wing Foundation.
0: Raj Madan was born in Rawalpindi. He came from a Hindu tribal family that hailed from Dera Ismail Khan in Pakistan. Raj still speaks his native language, Derewali, but he might be one of the only ones left that actually does.
3: Dera, see all these uh, uh, what religious Proper leaders, what you call it, they used to have their own communities and names were based on Dera Ismail Khan, Dera Ghazi Khan, and those kind of things. And there's a very unique language, it's called Derewali. That's what we used to speak. And I think I'm the last generation. It's going to disappear. Because except two or three cousins, nobody speaks that language.
0: Derewali is somewhat similar to Punjabi.
3: Punjabi, janda right? Uh, in that language, so there's certain words are completely different, some are little same. Dera, Dera is like, uh, you know Dera, Dera's is like, it's not a camp where they settle certain tribes. You know? yeah. But I think my family was from those hilly areas. At home, after the partition, or even with the parents, it was Derevali. And few of my uncles and aunts, Darewali. right? Because that was the primary language. Uh, eventually, when the second generation started coming, they switched that to Hindi. Uh, darewali disappeared. Like some of my cousins, they understand darewali but they cannot speak. And some, like one of my cousins, she went back to uh, Hyderabad last week. In India, we were together, we used to speak, Talk to each other in Delhi, but now talk to each other in Hindi. I mean, things have changed.
0: Raj's family moved to Lahore just before partition to prepare for their migration to India. He was four years old at the time.
3: At the time of partition, what I recall was like uh, my father, uh, my mother, myself, my brother and the grandfather. uh, We were in Tanga. You know, horse cart used to be there. And that's how we left. And I remember that time I saw the fires, the houses on fires. What I heard, my grandfather had some cash. He carried that. And he had a big rifle. And what I heard later on that time, I don't remember. Uh, but he was assisted by one of his workers who was a Muslim. So he helped him to get out and uh, something had to be done. So he was like, he was a protector. And another thing was like, not only that, my grandfather was wearing a a cap, which was a Muslim cap. So they could pretend to be Muslim.
0: His family then moved to India, where they spent time in refugee camps and lived in cities all over the country.
3: We spent some time uh, with my aunt, Uh, That was in Faridabad. And we were living in the tent. There were a lot of tents all over. We were living there and no toilets, common toilets. Or you can say they used to be hand pumped to get the water, single place. And it was a tough time. People didn't have a job. And at the same time, all of them, they lost the property. Eventually my grandfather, if I, I just recall, I mean they moved to New Delhi, New Delhi means Delhi and what was going on that time, because Muslims went to Pakistan, Hindus came here, the lot of houses were empty, so wherever they could find they just started living there. So they found a small room, small house, they started living there. Eventually I think uh, I don't know after how many years, they became the owner. They only two rooms. and
0: Straying from the path of his tribal predecessors, his father eventually got a job. But he couldn't deal with the corruption in what was back then a much more honest India than the one we know today.
3: My father, eventually, he got a job because he was educated. Normally in the families, they were not that much education, but my uncles, my father, they were... And he found a job in UP, there is a place called Ginor as an inspector. And I remember people used to come and give us like a, boxes of sweets and there are notes inside. And my father didn't like it. He said, no, we don't want it. So he quit the job. I mean, they used to come give it to me. My father used to come get angry Why he took it. And they used to return it. <laughs> He said, look, I don't want that job. (laughs) Because, you know, that time the people were very honest and bribe was considered as, uh, not the crime, as sin. Not anymore, but that's what it was. So finally he left, uh, he found a job with uh, the U.S. post office. So we moved to Shimla. That's where I grew
0: up. Raj eventually journeyed out of India for good. But the way he did it was far from typical.
3: India, I left in 1970. Yeah, I hitchhiked to Germany. Wow. No. Well, no. yeah. it was fun. Then I did uh, civil engineering there. Then uh, uh, I met one friend. He wanted to go have a hitchhike. And I said, okay, then we got another one, three of us. You went to Bombay, and you uh, took the cargo ship, went to Basra. From Basra, I went to Baghdad, Syria, and all those uh, backpacks. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. It was fun. I mean, really enjoyed it. Uh, when I left, I had, uh, that time, Indian government allowed only five pounds. Currency, you couldn't carry more than that. So we ended up in Germany, found a job, it was tough, language. Worked for a year, then moved to Canada. Lived there for 10 years and came to US.
0: Raj Madan's life has been a journey of changes. The one constant, he says, is the fact that nothing is permanent. Amida Hussain was born in 1936 in Hyderabad, Sindh, which is located in current-day Pakistan. Her father, a judge, believed in educating all three of his daughters along with his sons, even if it meant sending them all to live in a different city.
4: Our family was from Hyderabad, Sindh, but because he was so keen on our education, and in those days the schools in Hyderabad were not too good, so... We, we stayed in Karachi with my mother, while he stayed wherever his workstation was. My older three brothers and sisters, two sisters and one brother, they went to a Sindhi school to start off with, whereas us younger three, we have, there's six of us in the family, the younger three were sent straight to a convent to study, so that's why English is very much my own language in a way. My mother came and took up a house, rented a house in Karachi. So we were all there in the beginning. Um, so um, we used to go to school as day scholars. I used to go on a bicycle, and we all went on bicycles. Life was very different in Karachi in those days, much more liberal than it is now, in fact. And um, it it was a, a convent, but it was a very mixed uh, population there. I mean, Karachi was fairly cosmopolitan. There were, It wasn't sort of... Uh, one kind of community there. There were a lot of Parsis and Christians and one never bothered about religion. Uh, So, you know, partition came as a bit of a surprise to us.
0: Hamida was barely 9 or 10 years old when she first began to hear slogans about the formation of something called Pakistan. I think it was 45 or 46
4: when, you know, the political movement was very active. The, The independence struggle became very, very strong and everybody was out in the streets shouting slogans and so on. I remember hearing these slogans, Larki Rahenge Pakistan, Marke Rahenge rahenge Pakistan, which we didn't understand, I must say, that what was to come, you know, it it just seemed like a very rhythmic slogan then. And um, in those days, of course, every I suppose uh, most of the Muslims supported the Muslim League. But it was interesting that um, in my mother's family, they're quite um, against the establishment. My aunt, one of my aunts decided, and she was more or less pushed into it by a family as well, her sisters and brothers that you must contest and so on. So she'd applied for a Muslim League ticket, but it wasn't given to her. Instead, it was given to an Ahani woman and because Jinnah was very friendly with that family. So my aunt decided to contest against her Against the Muslim League, which was, uh, in retrospect, a very foolhardy decision to take, because you know the whole spirit was for the in favour of the Muslim League. There was they were supported by so many, but nevertheless, uh, she felt brave enough to do it, and of course she lost. That was to be expected, but I remember she also asked me to be on the, uh, you know, when you're uh, to be her agent, I think, in the room when they're casting their votes, and I was. Very young, I think I must have been 10 years old or something like that. And um, so I could see that there weren't, you know, 10 women would come all at the same time and didn't know what they were doing. But I was too nervous to say anything to them. And so then afterwards, people got very angry with me because I hadn't said anything that they were cheating or forging their votes with. I learned hard.
0: The Muslim League was the main political party formed by Muhammad Ali Jinnah the creator and the first prime minister of Pakistan. Suddenly,
4: you know, there was 14th of August or 13th of August and we went to school and then there were two days of holiday because 14th was Indian National Independence Day and 15th was Pakistan's Independence Day. So those two, or, or maybe for a week a school, school may have been closed, I'm not sure. Then I went on the next day after school opened, after the 15th, It was a strange sight because the school was almost empty. There were about, you know, about 10 or 12 students. Because all the Hindus suddenly were not there. And, you know, there was nothing uh, that we'd noticed, you know, like in other places, in India or Pakistan, the violence.
0: There was not that kind
4: of violence, but there there must have been, obviously, threats.
0: Even when Hamida saw the long lines of Hindu families waiting to board their trains to India, she didn't realize the depth of the transformation that was taking place, a transformation that would come to be known as the partition of India and Pakistan. We went to
4: the railway station. We were living very near there. And I used to see these families, the Hindu families, with all their tins and packages and whatnot wrapped up, sitting on the railway station waiting for their train to come. So up till then, it seems to me, at least, I don't know, because as a child one doesn't know the exact thing, uh, that they were leaving. Hmm. And But you couldn't see that you know, there had been any signs of violence, like injuries and so on. One didn't, at least from what I remember. But then there were... You know, these are just, um, I mean, memories that I have that as we were going in the train, we were there, the six of us children, and my sister and brother were a bit older than us. And But there was another family sitting in a corner, sort of looking very scared. And I remember it all, after, even after all these years. And for some reason, we said, um, go to your country, go to your own country. But yeah, I think as, as children, we said it. And and uh, and then my oldest sister told us to shut up that we shouldn't talk like that. And why are we saying that? So she was conscious enough to stop us. But uh, later on, I've just been wondering where did I get it from? Because our family was was not like that. You know, we never had this feeling about uh, communal feeling. But here we were telling them, you know. And why did we think that this was not their country? So uh, whatever you know, wherever I got the message from, I
0: don't know. But this must have been a feeling amongst other people must have grown too. Sometimes, however, the sight of suffering itself becomes an opportunity for transformation. Hamida not only witnessed this in her own family, but became an integral part of it. And so my grandmother, who was a very um, courageous and innovative person,
4: and she, during her stay in Turkey or wherever else, she had um, taken a course in midwifery. So she knew a bit about you know, delivering babies and first aid and so on. So what she did was she found an empty house. So she just walked in and she said, look, there are a lot of rooms here. Let's convert it into a shelter and a hospital for these people. So every time the train loads would come and the train would arrive, some of us would be sent there, the older people would be sent there to see who needed help. And the women would be brought to this hospital. And then she recruited all of us, including me. Uh, I was about 11, I suppose, at that point. Um, to come and help out in the hospital so you know, like making beds, that or helping them with their food, and thing. Yeah, I remember a woman who had, was wearing all in red clothes and so on, and she had a big gash here, and she just got married, and she was gone for the marriage ceremony or something, and she they'd been attacked, and so, and they'd got into the train, her husband had been killed, her bridegroom in fact had been killed, and she she came had come with her parents. So because she had this wound, she was kept in the hospital. And she used to, you know, was also mentally very upset. She would cry at night and so on. So we spent some several months doing this work. After school, I would go there. In
0: 1952, Hamida went to college in Hyderabad. But it wasn't a particularly heartwarming experience.
4: So first of all, I was studying science. It was a pretty difficult subject. And um, there's all this segregation between the men and women the students and the boys who were there come from the villages and they didn't know how to behave with girls and they used to behave badly so it was all these girls grouped together in one corner <laughs> thing. and the teachers also didn't see what was wrong with that um, so like you know if I'd go up to study in the library and I'd find these eyes sort of staring at me uh, so that was not very comfortable And then after a few years, I went away to study in the States.
0: By the mid-1960s, Hamida's family had moved from Sindh to Dhaka. She met her husband there, and they married in 1965. Even then, she couldn't escape the scenes of transformation, this time from a country called East Pakistan to Bangladesh, which was eventually born in 1971. As she reflects on her journey, Hamida recalls the impact of transformation, Particularly in nineteen forty-seven, when she was part of the majority,
4: forty-seven in a way was different because um, it was more like uh, like the violence that took place. If you're referring to the, the communities going for each other, and the majority community, whichever it was, going for the other because the minority, and I think a lot of it obviously stirred up politically people you know because I mean I don't think hatred comes naturally to people neighbors and so on but as a member of the majority community personally as I said in, earlier that you sense the differences different people but you didn't actually live in an environment of fear like you know wondering who's going to knock on your door in the middle of the night who's going to take your daughter away who's going to you know kill your father or rape somebody you know If you're not a minority community, that doesn't uh, happen to you. I just felt this, saw this changes, you know, empty houses. But that also makes you feel, you know, what's going wrong, you know, because suddenly houses are empty, the doors are open, you can just walk in, everything is being left behind. Or you see these different kind of faces, faces you're not used to. Or you see a school which has been full of students and suddenly it's emptied out. And yet a week later again it starts filling up, but with different people. So those are my impressions uh, of 47.
0: Stories we hear about hail from the natives of Punjab and Sindh in the northwestern part of the subcontinent. Partition transformed the lives of so many others. We'll explore some of these next week on Asian Threads. Join me, same time, same place, right here on Radio 3.
2: Asian Asian
3: Asian Threads is sponsored by the Wing Foundation.